Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. We're in Easter season, and we've been looking at the meaning of Easter. Not not the usual way of just ringing tones, of asserting that Jesus is risen and leaving it at that. But what does it mean? What are some of the implications that Jesus is alive again? Today, I'd like to share a sermon beyond ideas, beyond ideas. These Americans, they're all apocalypticists, the professor muttered as he stormed out of the lecture hall after only 10 minutes of discussion. Obviously, he and the Princeton student body understood the return of Jesus Christ, well, differently. In the 1970s, Jürgen Moltmann was famous for his groundbreaking book, The Theology of Hope. He believed biblical hope was not some pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by wishful thinking, but that it was a this-worldly, passionate dream and hope, a goal, the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. This hope for a world in which the meek are exalted and the hungry filled and the prisoner freed stirs our souls and it inspires our imaginations until we are drawn toward making it happen. Knowingly or unknowingly, our dreams shape our thinking and our thinking motivates our doing. The the ideal of what could be possible inspires and pulls us toward its concrete fulfillment in society. Hope is, as Moltmann put it, The power of the future sounded real good. In my last semester at Princeton Seminary, Moltmann was to be our theologian in residence, and he would help teach a class on biblical and theological perspectives on hope. Well into the semester, he finally showed up. In a brief lecture, Moltmann declared that what mattered was not a literal descent of Christ to earth or some concrete divine kingdom inaugurated by God, but rather simply the power of hope, by which he meant the thought-shaping ideas that motivate human beings to make social change happen themselves. The return of Christ to create a just and righteous kingdom was merely a picture to inspire us to create our own new reality. So, when it came time for questions, the students, and interestingly both conservative and liberal alike, they questioned, well, was that really what Jesus intended when he spoke of the coming of the Son of Man? 
merely the power of human hope? Didn't Paul expect a very real, concrete return of Christ to earth to complete what humans could never achieve on our own? Moltmann was clearly squirming by this time, and then they asked, isn't it dishonest to proclaim the hope that Christ is coming to transform the world if we don't really expect he will? And another wondered, can the world really be perfected through human imagination and creativity and ingenuity, tainted as we are with sin, without any concrete act of God? At this, Moltmann exploded in some choice German expletives and rushed out of the hall, apocalypticists, they're all apocalypticists. He never returned to teach the class. A theological tempest in a teapot from half a century ago uh, maybe, but it brings into sharp relief one of the nagging issues that impacts how we understand the gospel, what it does, and how it affects you and me. You see, when Moltmann accused us all of being apocalypticists, he meant folks who look forward to an actual end to earthly history, the physical return of Jesus Christ to judge and heal the world, and some actual act of God to raise the dead to new life for a new existence in some kind of new heaven and new earth, however you want to picture that. To Moltmann, the whole power of the Christian gospel was the power of inspirational ideas. For us students, the power of the gospel lay in the acts of God in history. That is, it is the power of divine events. Ideas or events. For the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, and later for the revivalists Charles Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, creation, salvation, and the redemption of the world were grounded in acts of God, things God did. And again and again, God revealed himself in history, meaning in concrete actions, whether in creating the world and all that's in it, uh, in making covenant with Abraham and Moses, in freeing the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery and dividing the sea, or through signs and wonders at pivotal times in history, or through the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus, or through the miracles of Jesus as signs of the coming kingdom, or through the sin-atoning agony of the cross and the triumph of his resurrection, and then on through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers and the mission of the church. 
These were acts of God in human experience. And in the same way, they looked forward to God's final saving actions at the end of history with the return of Jesus Christ, the defeat of God's enemies in earth and in heaven, the bodily resurrection of the dead, the creation of a new heaven, new earth. All of these were, they are, or will be, not just inspiring ideas, but concrete acts of God. God does things. Now, what marked the 1800s, that was really a watershed, the 1800s from the centuries before, was a a creeping skepticism about whether God does or can actually work within human affairs. Did God actually, actively, and miraculously create this world, or was it the product of random evolution in which God may or may not have participated? Does God do any miracles? Did Jesus actually do any miracles? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Does the Holy Spirit actually speak to people? By the turn of that century, the watchword, as it was coined by Albert Schweitzer, was thoroughgoing skepticism. God doesn't really do anything. So, what do you do? What do you do if you don't believe the miracle stories or any actual act of God in human affairs anymore? But you don't want to jettison Christianity as a whole as a bunch of religious superstitions from a bygone primitive age. Well, you explain everything figuratively. The wondrous stories of the Bible, they don't need to have happened. They're only inspiring religious ideals expressed in story form. You and I are saved, they concluded, not through anything God does, but through the power of religious ideas. Let me give you one example of how radically that changed the religious landscape. Walter Rauschenbusch. Walter Rauschenbusch. Despite an early conversion experience, which he later, well, repudiated, as a seminary student and professor of the American Baptist Church, he rejected the accuracy of the Bible. He dismissed the writings of Paul and the other epistles of the New Testament, and he decided to base his faith only on the sayings of Jesus. No miracles, no death to atone for our sin, no resurrection. He thought the only sins that really matter were what he called public sins, that is, the injustice embedded in in our society and in our politics. 
the themes of justice and equality in the preaching of Jesus inspire us to press forward in his name to accomplish genuine social change. It's what he called the social gospel. If you've heard that term, that's where it comes from. Through his, though, though these beliefs that he had had very little in common with historic Christian faith, Rauschenbusch was practically declared a saint by the Episcopal Church. They still celebrate him every year. And his writings continued to exert a broad influence, most notably through the life and writings and preaching of Dr. Martin Luther King. So, that's how we got where we are in the churches of America. And this is at the heart of the spirit of modern theological liberalism. In an attempt to create a rational religion that appeals to skeptics, the God who acts in history has been replaced with the ideas that inspire human achievement. One might say, God only works through inspirational ideas. It also implies, by the way, that God can only work through people of ideas, that is, intellectual people, but just don't call attention to the inherent arrogance of that. Just saying. Rauschenbusch died in 1918. The soldiers were slaughtered in trench warfare, and poison gas drifted across the battlefields of Europe. The horrors of World War I gave way to the horrors of the Second for which we had to invent new words, blitzkrieg, holocaust, weapons of mass destruction. The inspiring idea of socialism in produced the communist dictatorship, that is, the economic manipulation of the many by the few managed through impenetrable layers of indifferent government bureaucracy and enforced by ruthless secret service, by surveillance, torture, and gulags. The history of the 20th century has amply exposed the flaw in the transformative power of inspiring ideas. That is, they can be bent to evil purposes. You see, the weakness at the heart of liberal theology is the problem of the human condition. Sin affects everything we think, we say, we do. Sin is not just a few wrong or unwise actions, but a predisposition, a self-seeking obsession with my own personal wants and whims. 
I can bend any rule. I can twist any principle. I can rationalize any perversion to justify whatever it is I want to do for myself. We do it all the time. And often we don't even notice because it is second nature. You see, inspiring ideas, no matter how powerful, might impact human social organization or legislation, but they cannot change the fundamental human condition. There's no force within human beings that can transform the essential nature of who we are and how we think and how we act. It requires something greater something higher, something from outside of ourselves. It requires someone, with a capital S, doing something. Now, there are lots of things about figurative, figurative interpretation of the Bible. There are a lot of things that God has done in human experience that we do tend to spiritualize. Well, we might take it figuratively. Preachers do it all the time. You know, just like Jesus gave sight to those who were physically blind, in the same way he gives sight to the spiritually blind. And we find that in the New Testament already. Ephesians 1.18 prays, May the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. And that's drawing the same analogy between the healing of the blind and the opening of spiritual eyes. The healing of the lame could also be taken spiritually as a therapeutic betterment of our walk with God. It's not much different from what the preacher does, whether he's conservative or liberal. We'll take God's concrete act in history and turn it into a figurative or spiritual idea that in some way should move us to action. The difference between what the liberal does and what the conservative believes is that while the liberal thinks that the God events could not and did not actually happen and therefore must be purely symbolic, the conservative believer affirms that God events can and do happen and that they can also communicate truth on several levels, including the figurative and spiritual level. However, while this kind of figurative or spiritualizing interpretation can apply to a lot of things in Scripture, there's at least one, at least one event, one act of God which cannot be dismissed and merely spiritualized into some sort of edifying idea, namely 
the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Gospels all affirm that Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. The tomb was empty, the body was gone. They agree there were no signs of grave robbing because the winding sheet and the sundarian that was used to tie the mouth closed were still there and carefully folded up to one side. Jesus then appears to his disciples in physical form. Mary Magdalene touches him. He invites the eleven and Thomas to do the same. His uncle and a friend watch him physically break bread. He eats in front of witnesses. <coughs> his goings and his comings might be a little uncanny, but all of the stories, however different, have in common that Jesus is physically, bodily alive again. It was not an idea, not a popular myth, a stirring dream, or an inspiring hope. But it happened. The resurrection was a divine event. Today, I will not spend a lot of time defending that the resurrection actually happened. Suffice it to say, one, his opponents were unable to quash the Jesus movement by simply producing his body because, well, it wasn't there. Two, the resurrection of the dead man to life was not a pre-existing idea or a common myth in the ancient world that was ready at hand, nor is it the kind of notion someone just comes up with out of the blue. And third, it's not the kind of idea that, if unsubstantiated, simply by the power of hope in the religious imagination, is going to turn a bunch of deeply disappointed and despondent ex-followers into fiery evangelists and fearless martyrs. Something happened that Easter morning. And while the skeptic might think it inexplicable, there is one and only one explanation that makes sense of all that follows that Jesus really was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be merely an inspirational idea. It is beyond ideas. It is a game-changing event. Now, We're not sure why some Christians in Corinth thought there is no resurrection of the dead. There have been lots of suggestions. Maybe they believed in the immortality of the soul, which was freed from its fleshly confines at death. 
Maybe they thought they were already raised with Christ, here and now, and were already beyond death, ready to walk straight into heavenly glory from here. We have no inkling. We don't know. But we do know they were obsessed with the idea of wisdom, that is, inspiring ideas and spiritual speculation. So Paul reminds them of his first arrival in Corinth, and he makes this very important distinction. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the verses 1 through 5, and pay attention to this. <coughs> when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not in plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. You see, Paul did not enter Corinth like a charismatic televangelist. No brash displays of oratory and magnetic presence, no lofty ideas and intriguing theories, you know, the kinds of things the Greek philosophers delighted in. There's nothing impressive about how he appeared nor what he said. In fact, he appeared weak. And what he said sounded foolish. But Paul makes a sharp dichotomy between human wisdom versus the power of God. Human wisdom and ideas cannot save anyone. Presuming, in fact, that you can save yourself by your superior brain is, well, it's the height of arrogance. The only thing that saves and changes lives is the power of God, that is, direct divine action. You see, God has to create new conditions, whether it's earthly conditions or heavenly conditions. We humans cannot change our conditions. Well, okay, maybe we can make things worse than they already are, but we can't dig ourselves out of the pit in which we have dug ourselves. Humans cannot create just systems. We only create unjust systems. If we try to create a just system, all we do is swap around who is going to be the victims of our injustice this time? Paul recognized it takes someone outside of ourselves who can actually do something to change our fundamental spiritual condition. Something has to happen. And what Paul makes clear is that what happened is Jesus, crucified 
and raised. God took the initiative to act on our behalf. He came in human form to take your place in judgment, to receive your sentence and suffer your punishment. And then the work completed to be raised to a new, never-ending life once more, an act of God that changed the very fabric of reality. Now, by the way, if it did not really happen but is only symbolic, where is the generally inspiring moral to be drawn from the resurrections of Jesus' story? That love will rise from the ashes? Or that life will triumph? Well, not if Jesus didn't rise but stayed dead. If he stays dead, it proves the lie to the edifying moral. Those are only empty platitudes unless Jesus was actually restored to life. Writing to Philippi a few years later, Paul reflects on what really matters in life. Let's look at Paul's ultimate goals in Philippians chapter 3, the verses 10 through 11. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, after discounting all the kinds of things people might crave or value in this life, he's left with the most important thing, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, this is way beyond inspiring ideas. Rather, God's raising of Jesus created a radically new condition in the world, now, for the moment, still invisible, but certain nonetheless. Now, life does and will triumph. Now, suffering will be vindicated and rewarded. Now, those who die, die in genuine hope that God will, in fact, raise them too, just as he raised the one in whom they trust, the crucified Jesus of Nazareth. An act of God has created a precedent and a potential for another new act of God. Because Jesus lives by the power of the Father, so you can live by the power of God. Because the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you, by that same Spirit you can be raised as well. This one divine event is the prototype and the model for an all-encompassing divine event to come. Rest assured, biblical hope is not merely the power of inspiring ideas that can move you to courage and creative change. Biblical hope is grounded in epic-making acts of God in history, meaning in people's experience, which change the conditions of the world. 
The resurrection of the dead is not an inspiring ethic you and I can make happen if we hope and work hard enough. You're not going to raise any dead people on your own. It takes a recreation of this mortal body of clay into something different, higher, and enduring. And that can only be a mighty act of God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.